You may be busy doing something while you listen to this podcast, but you're never too busy to eat healthy if you eat Vite Ramen. This podcast is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Show support for a sponsor that supports Moore's Law is Dead at the link in the description. And if you do, make sure you use offer code BROKENSILICON. And you can also support Moore's Law is Dead if you need Windows keys or software at cdkeyoffer.com. If you go there, also use the code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows keys or die shrink for 3 percent off everything else on the website all right now let's get on with the show Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. Uh, I am your host, Tom, and today I am joined... Well, actually, I'm joined by... This is one of a small, special group of guests I've had where I felt compelled a year and a half ago to put in like a two-minute intro that, hey, guys, we're going to be talking about overclocking and new graphics card releases less often than usual. It's going to be a more technical episode, but I think you'll enjoy it, to which I don't think I really need to put out those disclaimers anymore. I think I've been doing this almost 200 episodes. People know if we're talking, it's going to be something that's interesting that eventually relates to gamers. And I don't know. I You really are one of the best, I mean, what uh, you know, storied industry veterans that we've had on this show and i'm so happy to have you on again a year and a half later uh why don't you introduce yourself well thank you tom thanks for having me again i'm dave eggleston and i have a long background in semiconductor memory and uh, it's been great chatting with you uh, it was like you said about two years ago that we talked and a lot has happened in two years so i think there's an awful yeah. lot to catch up on yeah you know on the previous episode, which link is in the description for those who want to go through that, I think we go in more detail through your work history. But you know, I think here's a fun way of asking this type of a question to kind of give people an idea of who you are. If you're at a bar and you want to impress someone, what's your what's the title you've held at a company that you'd probably say first to impress them? If I want to impress them, it's been startup CEO. So that I've done. Well, I suppose uh, but, it depends on the bar. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on the bar. But, you know, I've always considered myself to be an engineer first. And that's the way I think about things, too. So, yes, I've had more involvement on the business side as, as years have gone by. But what's always interesting to me is the technology. And then how do you apply the technology? I think that's the key thing for me. How do you use it? And that's what I like getting into. Yeah. But just to be clear, when I go through your history, I mean, you were the vice president of embedded memory at Global Foundries, director of systems engineering. Worked at Micron, Micron for a dozen years. Yep. Yeah. You've been a product engineer at AMD, you worked at SanDisk. So I just want to make it clear to the people listening that um, you have been around this industry and touched a lot of different products when it comes to the memory they use. So, like you said, though, it's been a year and a half. I do want to start with just kind of a lay of the land. I mean, when it comes to like AMD versus Intel versus NVIDIA, to which someone, a lot of people, including people I talked to at AMD would add versus Apple on there. Interesting, interesting. Uh, some of the server products I see on presentations, depending on exactly the niche it occupies, AMD is doing some internal evaluations where they're directly comparing their architectures to Apple more often than Intel. Now, it's it's really a fascinating time to be following this space. But like, 
how would you summarize the lay of the land, you know, with these companies, mostly AMD, NVIDIA, and Intel, but throwing anyone else? Yeah, let's let's dive in, in particular on Intel. So Intel just reported their third quarter today. And, you know, there's a lot of, lot of news out there about that. Um, one of the things I'll, I'll comment quickly is I was surprised on the data center side how weak it was. You know, that did surprise me. A client we've known for a while is weakening. But Intel's in for a big transition. And Intel as a company, what Pat Gelsinger's made clear, is they're proceeding as a products company, which they've been for a very long time, with their own captive manufacturing. But now they're going to add foundry to it as well. Well, that's a very difficult thing to go off and do. And why is that? Mm-hmm. Because when you're manufacturing products and doing, and it's captive manufacturing, you can tune the process or tune the product to exactly what the, the customer wants. When you're a foundry, you suddenly have a dozen customers or hundreds of customers. You can't do that anymore. You have to set this silicon platform in place with different modules that fit into it. And so uh, compared to AMD, AMD years ago had fallen behind in the silicon manufacturing uh, side of it. And so they split off their foundry business as global foundries. Mm-hmm. So AMD is, you know, if you think of it as a two-part company, the manufacturing and the product side, this is where they split off the foundry side quite a while ago. And uh, we have a question about that later on I'd like to get into. And they really uh, jumped on the train with TSMC and said, okay, we're going to really go hard with TSMC. And that's given them a good lead, you know, good process node lead. And we see that playing out right now. Intel on the other side has kind of kept with this, I'm keeping both the manufacturing and the product together. And as a result, I've got to keep those two in sync. Now, what they're looking at is running those fabs is very expensive. Investing in these process nodes and going each generation is expensive. How can I share those costs with others who need advanced manufacturing? So I think this is two very different approaches Mm -hmm. to the same kind of problem, which is the cost of manufacturing. So I'll pause there and just kick it back to you, Tom, to drill down a little bit more. Well, yeah. So what I would... Uh, what came to mind while you were talking there foremost was I'm sure you do some consulting, right? And like you, you get, you come onto calls, people ask you your opinion on how these companies are evolving, what will work, what won't work, what they might do in the future. I do that a little bit now too. And, and a wild card question some people have is, do you think Intel is going to spin off their foundries? And that often comes with a tone where some people are like, they don't think it, but there are some people work at some you know, hedge funds who like, it's know, like a wild card thought that they, think yeah, I think that was a, a real question uh, two years ago, you know? Okay. And I think with Pat Gelsinger joining, he's made it extremely clear that foundry is their priority. Now look at it, you know, the, in the quarter, the foundry business is $171 million for the quarter. I mean, that's mm-hmm. nothing compared to their business overall, but what they're trying to do is pivot and again, share that cost of operating fab with others. Now, there's a very interesting thing here, too, which is the geopolitics of the situation. Mm-hmm. And because AMD is so dependent, as in is NVIDIA, so dependent on TSMC in Taiwan. And in that case, what happens long term with Taiwan is a real question. So I did appreciate recently when uh, Pat Gelsinger about a week or two ago said, hey, Lisa Sue at AMD, we'd be happy to build your chips for you. Mm-hmm. And it sounds a little bit nuts, but it could happen. And it could happen oh, because of this geopolitical risk. Because if I'm AMD and I'm thinking, oh, Taiwan's, uh, there's a risk there. 
where else am I going to go for advanced manufacturing? And right now, it's really TSMC has the capability, and then Samsung has the capability. But Samsung is farther behind. They don't have the kind of volume capability of Foundry that, that TSMC has. And that's where Intel is trying to move into that space, plus you know, doubling and tripling down on the made in USA approach. Yeah, it's interesting that I think a couple of years ago when Intel was stuck on 14 nanometer for so long, there were a, a, a decent amount of people I would see suggesting that Samsung's number two, Intel's number three. I don't know if I'd say that right now, looking at how Raptor Lake's performing, but, you know, and I think at a minimum, though, whether you think it's still up for debate, in a couple of years, it'll be clear Intel's at least number two again. Wouldn't I think so. Uh, yes, absolutely. I think, and, and I think, let's be clear, they have to be, you mm-hmm. know, to really execute their, their plan as a company and move ahead. They have to, you know, we've seen this before, at least I have in my career. You know, I think Intel in the 90s kind of got to a point where they had some good products, but they were really having difficulty with their manufacturing, with their silicon manufacturing. And they focused on it and they became an excellent manufacturing company. They even mm-hmm. went out and did things like the, the motherboard manufacturing. They spun that up and they became a, a dominant supplier, but then and pulled back from it later. So it's kind of been this pendulum swinging back and forth on Intel, how much manufacturing they, uh, what they can do or what they're not doing. And what I think what happened here, let's go a couple of years back, is they were just got too fat and happy with mm-hmm. the product side. And they were making tremendous amounts of money, uh, both client and data center, and they didn't have any strong competition. And it's because of Intel's, uh, I'm sorry, because of AMD really moving into that space and executing so, so well under Lisa Su with a much lower spend. You know, you look at the headcounts, you look at the, the, you know, what the company spends to be in the business. They've been very, very efficient in coming up with it. And, you know, they've captured in the data center market, they're capturing, you know, 20% or thereabouts of, of those, uh, of those processors, which was kind of unthinkable a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, y- you say Intel would make AMD products and, you know, it's funny. I actually think I was the first to leak a couple of years ago that Jensen had had a, it was, not an official meeting. It was just like a phone call, but he had a call with Pat Gelsinger saying too, hey, by the way, if anything ever happened, would you make NVIDIA products? And Pat Oh, absolutely. Said, yes. And absolutely. And that's what they're calling internal foundry is the strategy at Intel. They're, you know, their first goal is, of course, to support their own product business. But to do that, you and I were chatting before we got on the air here, that in order to do that, you have to think about it a little differently. If you're a design team inside Intel and you had the possibility of tuning the process before and mm-hmm. just say, oh, that's the fabs problem. Go make that the fabs problem to fix it. It's, no, no, no. The fab gives you a platform. And the thing I learned from Global Foundries, and Global Foundries struggled with this for quite a while, is it's that whole ecosystem of IP and software that you have to pull together. And it becomes a very um, intense business. Now, TSMC has done that and built up that stack for a long time. I think this is probably the biggest challenge that Intel have is mm-hmm. building up this kind of in-between uh, software, IP, all the things that they need so that somebody can come in, who's somebody who's used to working with TSMC and getting a PDK, that's a process design kit or product design kit, and getting the PDK and designing against that 
and then chips come out the other end, right? I mean, that's kind of the way TSMC works. Well, there's a lot of magic that happens in that in-between layer, and Intel getting that right is going to be a challenge. Well, yeah, and it, it was interesting. It it seems like, to me, Intel keeping its foundries, it's not just about, and and I'm sure there's some of this, but it's not it's not really about, oh, we just control both, which makes us able to make special things. It's just right. having capacity that's guaranteed to you if it needs to be is just an asset. It's like holding an oil well. It's a resource, right? That's why you keep it. Yeah, it is while, thing, while fabs are full. You know, it is while things are rolling well. It's great. But then when times get tight, the cost to maintain the fabs, the cost to continue to develop nodes is extremely high. Which and is that's why the, they have to make sure they'd offer That's the brilliance of the TSMC model so long ago. I mean, uh, Morris Chang there pioneered this model. And, it, it, uh, you know, when they first came out with it, it was unthinkable that something like this could work. You know, there's the old uh, TJ Rogers who used to run Cypress semi years ago. It was real men to have fabs, mm-hmm. right? You, of course you have a that. fab. Yeah, because if you don't, you don't have a real company. Well, it's turned out to be completely different and that we funnel all these great companies, great companies like NVIDIA that are resting on top of all that work that's being done. So let's shift a little bit to NVIDIA. I think NVIDIA has done a phenomenal job in being very application-focused. And I think that's where they have excelled in building up software solutions around each of these applications areas, you know, uh, even drilling down into AI, into the discrete uh, end markets and finding what software they need. And the software is very sticky. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps others out from uh, from getting into that same business. Yeah, once and you're stuck them. to using that software, you don't that's want to right. switch hardware. That's right. You're not going to switch the hardware. So I think that that's been a very savvy strategy for NVIDIA is to have that capability and put that in place. So I think that, again, kind of stacking these three up, Intel has some big challenges on its hands in the manufacturing side. They've got to catch up on the silicon processing itself in getting mm-hmm. to the advanced nodes, they've, they've fallen behind on that. They have to build this uh, in-between layer of all the software, IP, et cetera, that makes them look like the, the same as another foundry, outsized foundry. And they're taking on a tremendous amount of n- new fab that they want to build, and they're having to come up with creative ways to finance that. Mm-hmm. So they've kind of got a lot of pressure and a lot of different sides. So I think their their challenges are well known. However, I'll be Intel positive today and say they've faced this kind of challenge before and they've come mm-hmm. through it. And I think Pat Gelsinger being his, you know, having his roots in Intel before and in Intel culture, I think he's got a good shot at leading them through that. Now it's going to take years. This is not something that you're going to look at, you know, a year from now and say, oh, that looks great. Uh, even in talking in their quarterly results today, they're talking about, hey, we'll resume silicon leadership, but it's 2025, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's, that would still be very aggressive to be able to do it. Um, in video, we talked about just being so end market driven uh, and really understanding what that ecosystem and getting that software in place. And then AMD, uh, my first job was at AMD, so I'm very partial to the company. And it's great to see them really reemerge and execute extremely well. The thing I'll point out is, you know, mm-hmm. when, when they came out with Rome and that how to build a processor and to build it with chiplets, um, just rather than trying to do it fully integrated, you know, that was seen as being unusual or risky. 
Now, I understood it because the core technologies where, you, you, again, you're doing all your, your transistors, that has to be in the most cutting edge. But things like your I.O. and analog don't scale. So mm-hmm. how do you put that together? And to put that together with chiplets uh, was brilliant. And now we see that strategy really paying off so much that Intel now is following that same strategy with Sapphire Rapids and going forward. And I think that that also, we'll come to it in a bit, but I think that also plays out with memory as well. I really underestimated um, how powerful the chiplet concept mm-hmm. was. I, I, you know, too many years, decades, integration was always the way to go. And then to see, oh, that's just an assembly technology, an assembly trick. No, it's a very, very powerful concept that changes the economics so you scale, you only go to the leading edge on things that you absolutely have to, and things that are around the periphery where you don't have to, you can uh, go with a little bit less aggressive technology. And AMD seems to be, and some people are mad at this, they wish Zen 4 had more cores, they wish RDNA 3 was like 100 different chiplets, it sounds like it'll probably be like 7 or a little with change, depending on how you count the Vcash on top of it. Um, but you know, slow but steady does win the race. I expect Zen five to be much more ambitious to four and four is kind of like a bridge to AM five, as far as I can tell. And RDNA three uses chiplets, but not that elaborately, but whatever, they're sure they can launch it on time. Right. Yeah. I think there's, there's kind of a subtleness to it that this whole Lego block analogy that you can kind of just plug chiplets together and get all these different configurations. It just it, it, it can't be that simple, right? I mean, there has to be a lot more to it than that. I mean, so I, I think that I would be make pretty them clever if it was Legos. You know, <laughs> it's much <laughs> more complicated. Yeah, but I think we'll find out. You know, Genoa is going to launch on November tenth. Here, it's one of the, the. I think they just came out with that a few days ago and said uh, that's that's when Genoa will be fully discussed and fully disclosed. Um, but you know, look, Silicon's been out there for a while. Uh, Intel's fallen behind. Sapphire Rapids got kicked back to next year for for true production quantities. Um, certainly, the test silicon is out there in the wild. I was at OCP last week, and you mm-hmm. could see a couple of the different platforms out there running. There was a Genoa platform that Microsoft was running already and showing some of the capabilities. And then Sapphire Rapids, I saw another company running and doing, uh, we'll come to it later, but talk about CXL memory pooling. They were showing that on a Sapphire Rapids platform. So I think, there again, this, this gap is there between Intel and AMD. AMD's definitely winning the race right now. And uh, I think the one thing that is just kind of an unknown or how it tips is the geopolitical risk. I think that that's mm-hmm. uh, something we... In the technology business, we don't normally think about, but in this case, it becomes uh, just that wild variable out there that that could tip things in a very strange way. Well, yeah, and it's interesting. Um, people like talk about these black swan events, like you know, you know, whether it's a war or a tsunami, an earthquake or something hitting Taiwan. The fact that everything's so centralized there is a black swan event. But I think, I think. I'm like, when I see what's going on with like with Russia and how Intel can't sell products there now, and because so much of their business is kind of built on just always filling up that fab, and then this kind of gives a you know th- there a big advantage Intel's had over the past few years has been even if they're at an efficiency loss or a performance loss to AMD, they have the capacity and everyone wants everything. But the second there are different types of black swan events. There could be a black swan event around Taiwan that screws AMD. But I I think we need to remember some of these 
could affect Intel more negatively as well, because if some specific form, how it is fully realized of a black swan event happens where TSMC still mostly functions, but in fact, people don't want to buy as much. And the company with the most efficient products is the one that'll take market share because AMD's only really failed to take a ton of market share recently because everything that you make sells and Intel. Yeah, they can't supply it. Yeah, if you can't supply it, you can't take advantage. And I think that that's, you know, that's where they've done a reasonable job. But, uh, you know, getting those first couple percent of market share is the easier part. Getting those percentage or tens of percentage later on is very challenging. I do want to ask one thing, though, um, and it's about how before Intel's gone through this before, they're going through it again. Based on the people I talked to at Intel, they are doing a lot of the, the the right things to get back on track. Like, for example, I heard that today outside of the earnings call, Pat is kind of briefing people and saying, hey, when you design a product, pretend Intel foundries are an outside foundry. You can't, like you mentioned it earlier, you can't do this thing. You design it, it almost works, and then you tell the foundry to fix it the rest of the way. We need to at least pretend like our foundries are separate. you know. And this is something that it, NVIDIA did to TSMC with Fermi, and, and it really bit them in the ass. They had to basically launch a whole new generation it, in eight months. It's spot on. I mean, when you ask a foundry to tweak something and run something that's corner, you know, something they don't normally do, it's not going to go that well. You know, you really mm-hmm. have to pull it back on your product design and fit into what the PDK says you can and can't do. Uh, the, the customization that Intel and their product teams have gotten used to, that's what Pat is pushing back against and saying, no, you can't do that anymore. And... and- and they, and this is a necessary evil just so that they can start op- having the foundry used to operating like they're an outside foundry for That's right. your NVIDIA if they come to That's them. That's right, because they like, have to, again, they have done. to practice. You know, again, I'll, I'll pull in Global Foundries for a minute here that, you know, one of the things I was watching recently that Tom Caulfield, who's the CEO, was talking about when he stepped into the chair uh, that, you know, they were a very efficient in their Singapore facility. And that's because mm-hmm. Singapore had been chartered, which was the number two foundry in the world years ago. But as you got into some of their other facilities, they weren't as efficient. And the big learning was, hey, we've got to run everything like we run Singapore. So what was different about Singapore is Singapore has hundreds of customers and they you know, have that capability and it's that mindset. Well, I'll bring it back to Intel then. Uh, because now we're we kind of are pivoting to global foundries, and you wanted to relate it back to Intel, anyways. Knobhead writes in, and he says, "I watch a lot of media reports that criticize Global Foundry's decision to not adapt seven nanometer and EUV technology." In hindsight, in 2022, now, do you still believe this was a right call to make? Hundred percent right call. Hundred percent correct. And let me give a couple reasons for that. First of all, is the, the volume of business that's out there in these middle nodes is enormous. Think of IoT, think of automotive, you know, all the things that, oh, we've got a shortage of chips. That's kind of the middle tier. There's very few companies that can actually do, uh, support, afford a five nanometer or a three nanometer tape out. They're extremely expensive. The return on investment has to be very high for you to do that. So yeah, it's not sexy. 40 nanometer is not sexy. Mm-hmm. 55 nanometer is not sexy. 28 nanometer is not sexy. But it lasts a really long time, tens of years, dozens of years, uh, that these t- process technologies are around. And they make sense for so much of these other, uh, other items that we have around us that have electronics in it. 
So you don't need cutting edge for everything and you don't want it. Global Foundries in particular was late with mm-hmm. seven nanometer. They could not put the funding behind getting the capacity in place to really compete. And, you know, they were told very clearly by one of their b- biggest customers, again, Tom Caulfield relating the story. He said, we won't buy from you. You can build it, but we won't buy from you because you're too small. You know, it's not worth our time to invest in that. Um, yeah, because so, if you're going to spend all that R&D cost designing a seven nanometer product, you, you're going to want to make a lot of them. And if they can't make a lot of them compared to in compared to TSMC, no one, few will buy it. Yeah. So Knobhead, it was 100% right decision for that company. It was at the time. It is now. You know, Global Foundry has been able to go public, do pretty well. And they're going to compete in kind of that middle area where there's an awful lot of business and they'll compete well. What you have to do there is you have to differentiate. And, you know, my role there years ago was to do embedded memory, embedded non-volatile memory of different types. And that adds value to that process technology. They've also done a great job of adding RF. So think of an IoT device. You know, if you have a great radio, you have memory on there, you have compute capability, you don't have to build it in chiplets. You can do it in a single integration. You can do it in one small piece of silicon. Now, do you have any concerns? Because I've kind of fluctuated between this concern I'm about to voice back and forth recently. I, I used to think, yeah, but long term, really long term. And I guess who's to say what really happens 20 years from now? But is there a fear that it, even though they are making some new nodes that are like, because they have a new, I believe, right. what is it, uh, 12 nanometer? That it's is a 12. Seems actually- mm-hmm. Pretty uh, pretty high performance for what we would normally call twelve nanometer yes. these days. But like super long term, the fact that they're not moving to seven nanometer is there just a chance eventually TSMC just makes a bazillion seven nanometer fabs and then starts churning that out and eventually. Yeah, I guess there's always that risk, but I think I think the equipment mix is is different, and I don't you, cer- certainly there is some risk of that, but I, I think that there's plenty of room in that middle ground. And again, coming back to, I know I've talked about it almost too much, normally don't think about it, the geopolitical risk. Uh, Global Foundries doesn't have any fab in in Taiwan. You know, they're, they're completely outside. They're, they're EU-based, they're uh, Singapore-based, they're US-based. And I think that that's going to be a strength for them here in the coming years as we kind of nationalize the semiconductor business to a certain extent. And that's unfortunate to see, but I think that that's going to be a strength for them. Yeah, I guess the question, kind of what I'm getting to is how long what they make, which goes up to a a really high performance 12 nanometer node, how long is that going to be considered middle ground? Do we think even if like Moore's law is dead, we're still getting new nodes if you spend a hundred billion dollars. So like, are we going to get to a point where like, the middle ground is six nanometer and therefore global foundry yes. falls behind. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think you okay. you know, you still have to move. You can't be static. You still have to okay. do some development. You're not doing it at the same pace as an Intel or a TSMC. You're doing it at a slower pace and you're moving in that direction as costs come down, as technology improves and costs come down. Uh, you're, you can make that transition. So as long as they get to like, five nanometer within six years or something I, I don't this isn't like a concrete estimate but like Wh- whatever that number fine. is yes yeah 
but they do have to move past 12. That will not always. Yeah. I think the key here is focusing a little bit less on the, how many nanometer technology is, you know, the litho and is focusing on the, the silicon platform that they're shipping and what sort of capabilities it has on it. And that's kind of the idea is when you're at the very cutting edge, and this is why the chiplets work, when you're at the very cutting edge, you just want to make screaming fast transistors. Mm -hmm. That's all you care about. You don't care about putting other things in with it. And again, a global foundry strategy uh, is in that middle area is I've got multiple things that you can put together on the chip and they do a complex function all in a single piece of silicon. Right. And so I guess... This is something actually one of my contacts mentioned to me a bit ago that I've I've kept in the back of my head. I've never really had a reason to talk about it a lot, but he told me how these cheap smart devices, we're always going to have Internet of Things stuff. We're always going to have smart devices that 50 years ago we'll look at. We would have looked at and gone, oh, my God, you can get that for this much money and it does this. But I was told the floor and the pricing of smart devices is very likely to go up soon because a lot of these older 65, 40 nanometer, whatever fabs are kind of falling in disrepair, especially at TSMC. No, I don't think TSMC so. Is just moving I think to we 28 see, nanometer. Yeah, yeah. I think in the case of maybe those guys, but uh, again, there are you know the UMCs and global foundries mm-hmm. of this world can can dominate that uh, middle. But space. that's what I was going to say. Is what you're saying is if TSMC kind of stops focusing on these older 60 nanometer fabs that they're just running because they still run this is where global foundries comes in and takes that business for the ultra cheap old stuff so you're not you're not worried about the floor and the cost of smart devices like these 20 dollars smart devices yeah. going up in price no and i think in a lot of the smart devices too if you think about it what's the re- you know how, how how do you pay for those devices is through services think of your smart speaker right mm-hmm. the the chips that go in there well they're selling you services through that so iot is a little more complicated than just selling the silicon itself and recapturing the, the cost of the silicon mm-hmm. okay this fall where you're trying to stay warm and avoid scary activation fees for windows software consider using cdkeyoffer.com cdkeyoffer.com is a long-term sponsor of moore's law is dead and its community for any time anyone in this community needs legitimate windows keys and doesn't feel like paying excessive monopolistic licensing fees to get access to them but that's not all they offer either they also have great deals on playstation steam origin and uplay keys and physical products like gaming chairs and keyboards as well They are always running sales, but make sure you use the best codes possible provided for the Moore's Laws Dead community. Use the link in the description or on screen, and then use the code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off Windows codes or die shrink for 3% off everything else on the website. This really does help Moore's Laws Dead when you use these keys and click these links, and it helps you pay reasonable prices for products that, let's face it, you just kind of need sometimes, and you don't want to overpay for. Go to cdkeyoffer.com today. I guess when we look at Intel's future, we can say, you know, they've been through this before, they've come out the other side, but I think there's no way around it that AMD has not acted, has not wasted what they've earned, right? And they are pushing forward consistently in a way that uh, to be honest, I, I see this all the time when sometimes I'll have guests on 
And they'll say, well, you know, AMD did well, then Intel came back. And I actually get annoyed because I'm like, I think it's clear AMD is way more formidable than they were in the 2000s. Like, I think not- so. They have a very good strategy, you know, like we talked about a while back when they came out with Rome and the way they're building Rome was was unique at the time. And they kind of moved the whole industry in that direction. So they've had a very good uh, silicon strategy and they've done it very efficiently. So the thing that really gives me pause, though, when I look at Intel's margins today, in their earnings is that they, and this has been something people have been arguing with me, and maybe I shouldn't pay as much attention to people who argue with me in the YouTube comments, fair point, but I see so many people act like Intel has higher margins than AMD and they can just outspend them. And to a certain extent, that's true in the fact that Intel's just a massively bigger company. But we're now seeing AMD's margins, I believe, are about to officially be higher than Intel's. I don't know how... Uh, yeah, I hadn't I, seen I, that I yet, know. but certainly Intel's margins are declining. You know, they're down below 50% this quarter, and that's that's notable that they've had that decline. And it's just a forecast, but AMD seems to be forecasting that though earnings aren't going to be great uh, compared to what they were hoping to have happen, that their margins, their gross margins should be above 48%, hopefully around 50 whereas Intel's are 42%. And, and this is widespread backed up by people I talk to in retail, people that I talk to in the server space who say Intel's raising prices, AMD's actually lowering prices with their next-gen products. And even though we see sticker prices at on Amazon, right, or Newegg that are a little higher than Intel, they're actually making the retailers a lot of money per chip sh- sold, whereas Intel at a lot of places seems to be selling these things at cost to keep market share. So I guess, I don't know if you could speak to that at all, but that is the one thing I worry about is Intel's coming back. Obviously, you know, Raptor Lake and Alder Lake are far better innovations than what we saw for like, what, 10 years out of their quad core division. But at the same time, I do feel like there is a ticking timer here where they need to be like caught up to AMD by 2025 or we could we could get into the situation that happened to Radeon versus NVIDIA where Radeon had low prices to try to take market share. NVIDIA kept market share but was making double the money per card made. They had more R&D. They outspent them in R&D. We're we're far away from that. But I do wonder, you, you see what I'm saying, though, if. I, I don't know if you can what you can say to that, but that is the yeah, one. Yeah, can't thing that really stuck can't really me. speak to that one. I think again, Intel has you know it's great company and has ex- executed on some of these challenges in the past. You know, rose to the challenge, so I fully expect that they'll they'll do that again, and we'll see a resurgence there. Is there a possibility AMD will stumble? Sure, you know, I mean that that's a possibility. Their execution has been extremely good over the past couple of years. Though, you know, they've been promising things, they've been delivering, and, uh, you know, I'm sure they've got some of their own transitions coming up as well as they get beyond Genoa that they have to uh, navigate as well. So, no, no, no real comment for me on that, on predicting the future on that one. What, what would you say is the biggest headwind or threat to Intel then? I the think the biggest headwind is just the, the financial pressure of trying to build these brand new fabs, trying to spin up a foundry business from almost zero, while at the same time trying to speed up their own product execution. I think that's a very difficult thing to do. It's kind of like doing too many things at once, mm-hmm. and, uh, but they, they just have to. I mean, there, there really isn't another strategy for them here. Uh, you know, Pat Gelsinger has been very clear. And they, they made that different decision that they're not going to split their product and manufacturing businesses. 
Mm-hmm. For AMD, so, it allowed AMD to soar, right? I mean, that's, that's what we talked about in the past. So it seems like, yeah, you're saying, you know, right now it's kind of a hypothetical them making products for other people, getting their notes. No, they do some. They do some, but well, it's I a know, relatively small business. But they've got to ramp that up, and they focused on that. That they've got thirty. What was it in today's announcement? Thirty-five new customer test chips that are going to be coming mm-hmm. out, and you know that's a start. Uh, they announced that MediaTek. MediaTek's a good, good-sized company uh, is going to start building with Intel. So you know, I mean, they they have that that capability, and it's just doing all these things at once uh, is going to challenge the company and, and stress the company and financially they've got big commitments to those fabs mm-hmm. right so it's not an abstract though they do have to make sure their fab starts acting independent and building up to where it can operate as tsmc if it needs to that's the biggest thing to watch i think so okay all right well let me see here then let's see zabito 3 writes in and he says with new process nodes developed by intel tsmc and other chip producing manufacturers I mean, will these things have an impact on speed density or the price of memory chips? And are memory chips developed, usually developed on a cutting edge node or a trailing one? And I think we're seeing this faster and faster memory technologies. Yeah, for, yeah memory. Let's, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about DRAM in particular, um, because DRAM is still a, a planar scaling technology in a lot of ways. And it's uh, so to answer the question specifically, that memory technology is on a cutting edge node for memory. So mm-hmm. memory processes are very, very different from the logic processes that are run in foundries. And they're custom made for making the smallest memory bit that you can possibly make. And in general, the memory technologies have pretty lousy transistors, but they mm-hmm. are very, very efficient on that memory cell. So the challenge for DRAM has been DRAM has this capacitor that you have to store your charge on, and they're making capacitors taller and smaller. And you just look at the scaling trend, it's just slowed down over the last decade. So there is scaling, DRAM scaling is still there, uh, but it's just not at the same rate. It used to be, you know, you could see 50% more bits year after year. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't see that anymore. You know, it's going to be 10, 20% year over year. So if we switch to NAND flash for a minute, NAND flash is, went to something called 3D NAND a couple of years ago. That's very different. So mm-hmm. rather than forming just one bit at a, you know one bit in uh, a certain area, NAND flash went in the 3D dimension, and so you actually deposit these layers, and then you drill through these layers. So you deposit hundreds of layers, literally alternating layers, and then you drill through it, and then you form the memory cell at that intersection. Mm-hmm. So the big challenge for DRAM is, hey, is there a 3D trick? that you can use. If there was a 3D trick and companies have been pursuing this for a while, then you can kind of restart that DRAM scaling. Um, Very uh, difficult challenge to do and plenty of research on that. My prediction is yes, by the end of this decade, we are going to see some kind of breakthrough on DRAM or a DRAM-like technology that can fill the space that will go 3D. So I think that that'd be an exciting innovation. NAND flash seems to be on that, you know, just stack more layers, stack more layers, and they don't see that slowing down. I spent quite a bit of time at Flash Memory Summit this this summer, uh, keeping track of those technologies, and uh, that that seems to be just on repeat there. Just stack more layers and keep going. So your SSD capacities are just going to continue to climb. Mm-hmm. So good news for you there. Um, DRAM though, DRAM has some challenges on the scaling. 
And we're going to see that show up here uh, increasingly as the years go by. So we need that breakthrough to 3D DRAM in order to kind of unlock and get back to uh, faster scaling. So, so to, to make sure I understand correctly, then you're saying, hey, look, better nodes, newer nodes, smaller, more dense nodes, that affects scaling memory across the board. If we can get to smaller nodes quicker, you're going to get faster DDR5, you're going to get faster GDR6 or GDR7, but it doesn't scale as quickly as SSDs do. Right. And and just to, to recap, yeah, recap on that. Memory processes are the scaling is very different from logic processes. Mm-hmm. The way you do it is different. It's really focused on the memory itself. In the case of NAND flash, I'll just go on a little bit further. They are to the point now where if you were to look at the base chip of a NAND flash chip, you don't see any area devoted towards memory. Well, where's mm-hmm. the memory? The memory's up here in the 3D. So it's incredibly efficient. So the base chip looks like entirely just the logic, which is the decoders, the sense amps, and these kind of things. With DRAM, you don't, you, you're still not there. DRAM, you would look at that chip, and you have something called array efficiency. And uh, whereas the array efficiency of, of NAND flash is incredibly high, almost 100%, in DRAM, you don't have that kind of array efficiency. So when you're, you're scaling these technologies... Um, it's, it's what's the size of the bit in the case of NAND flash, again, taking that bit to the back end of line and building it up in this dimension makes a, a big difference. So looking forward to seeing that from DRAM, somebody well, coming up with that. You said though, we're going to need something that scales this in that other way. It, it sounded like that was try at least it was an attempt to do that was Optane, but Intel yeah. canceled it. So I mean, honestly, the whole Optane thing I want to talk to you about, we talked about it a lot the last time you were on is right. Uh, the best way I can ask this question is what was Optane meant to be? What did it end up being in practice? And yeah. why did it fail? Or at the very least, why did Intel cancel it? Maybe you disagree it failed. I don't know. Yeah, great questions. Uh because Optane's a, a, a an interesting one to untangle. So I think the idea of Optane initially was, um, I'll, you know, I talked about this at an open forum in 2015, mm-hmm. is that if we go back to that time, Intel had 95 plus percent of the Bi86 server market. How do we grow market share? Where can we make more money? Let's grab memory. Let's do as mm-hmm. much as we can to, to grab memory. And what they were looking to do, and it's been talked about for a long time, is between NAND flash and DRAM, you think of the memory pyramid, between NAND flash and DRAM, let's put something in between. Let's put something that's faster than NAND and cheaper than DRAM, but also has persistence. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of in, in between. And... The idea was, let's do that and put that on the memory bus, put it on the DDR bus itself. So the couple different things on, on Optane. One was customers looked at it and said, oh, this is great. This is lots of cheap memory bits. Mm-hmm. It's just cheap DRAM, and you have to price it at half to one-third of DRAM for me to want to buy it because you know it's different, and it's sole-sourced from you, Intel. Um, and okay, I get it. It's tightly bound with your own processor. Intel tried to make the case for there's this value proposition around persistence. Mm-hmm. So, because if in, if you're Intel, you don't want to compete on it's just cheap dumb memory, and you're competing against Micron, Samsung, SK Hynix that do this day in and day out. 
And my quote at the time in 2015 is, well, you just made Samsung, you just pushed Samsung to make SSDs faster mm. and, and price DRAM lower, right? Because if there's no space in between, they're going to keep you out. And that's exactly what Samsung and uh, was Toshiba, now Kyoxia, and some of the others tried to do is they came out with faster and faster SSDs to kind of keep that space. They priced DRAM and, and pushed back. So to me, what it really came down to is, is there a value proposition, a strong value proposition around persistence in Optane? And it turned out the answer was mm. not really. There was one really good market for it, one really good application for it, which was in-memory database. So think SAP HANA. Mm-hmm. And in the case of SAP HANA, you know, in a database, you have rows and column stores. And it turns out that from a compute perspective, when you have your column stores in persistent memory, uh, that speeds things up. You don't have to go back to SSD and reload it. You just keep it loaded in memory at all times. And then the idea of Optane was, you know, you might have 4x the capacity of a DRAM DIM, mm-hmm. you know, sitting out there. So that market was good. You know, to- at, at its peak, 500 million to a billion dollar year market for Optane. And that's not good enough for an Intel, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, it, it's not a large enough market for them to address. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can, so I think that was the biggest issue was that persistence wasn't as valuable as what they wanted. And at the end of the day, customers are really demanding two things. They're demanding more memory and they're demanding more bandwidth per core. Mm -hmm. Well, when I'm putting Optane into a a DDR slot, I'm I'm gaining capacity, but I'm not gaining bandwidth per core. So I think when customers looked at that, they said, you know, this doesn't really meet my, my TCO objectives here in, in transitioning to this technology. So ultimately, I think, you know, Intel had to make that decision. Uh, of course, Micron was their fab for this. And Micron made that decision last year that they were out. Mm. And then Intel's kind of been sitting on the sideline this year and then finally said, yeah, we have to get out. And they've started even discontinuing some of the products. So the products will you know, still be around. There, there, there'll be a DDR5 version, I believe, that'll go with Sapphire Rapids. But if I'm an end customer, you know, I'm not going to invest time in, in developing for this space. So I think what's, what's fascinating, though, is we're, you know, I don't want to beat up too much on Intel today. I think we're you know, poking out Intel's flaws and how Optane didn't turn out to be what they wanted. But there was one really good thing about Optane for the industry overall. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it this summer, that it was, there's a legacy of Optane that's incredibly powerful, which is getting this idea of memory tiering in place. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to come to it as we talk about CXL, because what, what Intel did with Optane laid the groundwork for the kind of memory tiering, memory pooling, memory sharing that we're going to expect to see in the data center on CXL. And let me give a quick illustration of that. Because by putting this Optane device into a DDR slot alongside uh, you know, a DDR DIM, the memory controller in the CPU has to know that there's two different types of memory out there. And it actually had a different protocol in talking to Optane, a little bit different. So you suddenly had two tiers of memory and you had to manage it. One of the, one of the very tough parts for Intel was doing that inside a memory controller, which has to has very, very, add very little overhead to the overall system. 
And so a 100% hardware solution to manage memory tiering in the CPU, in a DDR slot, where the DDR mm-hmm. slots are so, so valuable, just didn't turn out to be a good way to do it. So let's open that box up for a minute. What if you could take a different type of memory, take that same Optane, and instead of putting it on the DDR channel, you put it somewhere else. And then DDR is still just DDR. You have all those slots available mm-hmm. for DRAM. Well, what if I could put that somewhere else and access it and I can access it in a way that there can also be some, let's just call it middleware software involved in doing that management. I've added latency, but if I address my problem of bandwidth per core, then that could be a win. Mm-hmm. And that's what started happening around CXL. Intel brought out on their side, they were, it was an internal project for quite some time. They were pressed by their, their customers to open up the standard, and CXL stands for Compute Express Link. And what Compute Express Link is taking the electricals of PCIe and adding a new protocol on top of it, which allows cache-coherent memory. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if all your listeners will know what that is, but cache-coherent memory, because I get beat up on this with storage guys. You, know, you throw out cache-coherence, they say, I don't know what that is. What that means is from the CPU, from the core, when that processor is looking for memory locations, it has a certain number of cache layers internal. It's called L1, L2, sometimes L3. It looks there first, then it looks out of DDR. What if you could go out a little further and go on a fabric such as CXL, and if I didn't have it in my small internal caches, I didn't have that data in my DDR, I could go grab it out on the network on this uh, on this fabric and grab that memory that suddenly expands out the memory that's available in a very broad way the trick is what's again keeping it cache coherent means all the way back to the processor core these address and address tags are known to the system Mm -hmm. so that what that gives by opening up this box what optane allowed us to do or allows us to think about and put some of the pieces in place is getting much more memory on the system, putting it on a bus, a serial interface bus, which is PCIe electricals. PCIe is going very, very fast in terms of its, uh, you know, how many uh, gigabits per second you can do on the lane. And they have a very fast pace of, of innovation that's going on there. Come back to the bandwidth per core. Now, suddenly... Uh, rather than having only 12 DDR channels on a CPU, which is really limiting, and I, I can't add more be- just because of the pins, now this allows me to go out outside the box and have more memory. And then we get to the, the concept of, of pooling and sharing, but I'll, I'll leave that for a second. Throw it back to you, Tom, to, to kind of drill down on how I pivoted from Optane to CXL. Well, no, I mean, the way we talked about it a year and a half ago, these things were inseparable. Like, Optane really needed CXL, is my memory of how you described it, for it to be fully realized. I mean, if if CXL were a good standard widespread adoption three years ago, could this have saved Optane? Or do you think another memory would have taken over because... 
Yeah. They were getting squeezed either way, though, because of cost, and they were only talking about persistence. They were getting squeezed by cost. Um, you know, CXL, the, the memory expansion that's the first step with CXL is being done with DRAM. Uh, but I think there is a, a case to be made that if you could have done this, had this sooner, uh, that might have allowed Optane. Certainly, Intel was developing some kind of Optane on CXL product that they would have in, in that space. So I think that that was um, part of their vision of where this would go. And yes, it would have been extremely helpful to have it in there. But I think in terms of the timing and then look at the challenges as we, we talked about over the last 45 minutes of what Intel has on its plate. Mm. And uh, Pat Kelsinger, you know, he, he's an old time Intel guy and Intel, you know, has started memory, many memory businesses and gotten out of them. Mm. So, you know, Intel was in the DRAM business a long, long time ago and, uh, and got out. Intel was in the EEPROM business and got out. Intel was in the uh, NOR flash memory business and got out. So in, in even the NAND flash business, they kind of were in with, with partners and they got out. So Pat Gelsinger just looked at it and said, I, I don't want to be in the memory business. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was the, the final decision. So I, again, I think they have to refocus on their, their core processor side and they'll let others provide the, the memory ecosystem around that. So I think what's exciting about CXL, I mean, it's at the, I, I like to say it's at the peak of the Gartner hype cycle right now. It does everything. And <laughs> we're going to find out here in the yeah. next uh, half year to two, three years as it rolls out. Uh, both Genoa and Sapphire Rapids have the first generation of CXL implemented in the mm-hmm. processors. And uh, there's some very early... Uh, early demonstrations of what you can do both in the server and server to think of it as server to rack level. You know, again, I think we talked about this last time too, is that ultimately you can picture memory appliances that are just loaded with, well, let's just say it's loaded with a lot of DRAM. And what that allows uh, a processor to do is I need some more memory. Let me go out and grab some memory, use it for a while and then release it. And that's going to be where we're ultimately headed towards, which is memory sharing. This is good not only for CPUs, it's also extremely good for GPUs, DPUs, any type of processing unit uh, can have that capability of allowing it to grab more memory for a while and then releasing it. So Jonathan Wagner writes and he says, Hi, Tom and Dave. With Optane gone, what technologies will help storage speeds continue to scale? Is persistent memory dead does flash have a roadmap for speed increases that could saturate pcie 5 6 and even 7.0 yeah. and we can and will we continue to rely on dram caches would putting flash physically next to a gpu improve latency and speed? that's really like six questions but like i'm using it for a launching off point just of because i don't know like, okay but optane's gone like what is going into cxl now is it fast SSDs and what eventually yeah, we'll be using a couple that, of years. And again, that's a great question. And yes, there's there's many different ways to take that one. And uh, what I'll point to is that label of persistent memory, I think got uh, attached too much to just persistent memory equals Optane. But if we pull back for a minute and think about it more holistically, you know, what we're saying is we're having some, we want something that uh, provides a lot of memory capacity and has a certain amount of speed, has a certain amount of performance. Now, you know, the full multi-level cell, you know, TLC, QLC, PLC, NAND flash, just to give you capacity in an SSD, you know, that's not really going to ever be suited to fill this space. But what I saw at Flash Memory Summit uh, this summer was a couple of the flash memory companies already talking about 
you know, what does that look like for very fast SSDs? So if we open our, our mind a little bit on the label of persistent memory, can persistent memory be fast mm. SSD? Yes, it can. Okay. And that's what they're advocating for is we'll fill that space. Right will now, the NAND, and it'll be a lot cheaper than Optane. Even if it'll it's be a lot cheaper advanced. than Optane. I think, will it saturate the PCIe bus? Mm, I think that's going to be, a, you know, he's talking about PCIe Gen 6, Gen 7. I think that's going to be a big challenge because I don't think even in its fastest level, the NAND flash is going to be able to mm -hmm. saturate that bus. Um, the way you do that is massive parallelism and then pipe that data through and, and put as much as you can. NAND is pretty good at that. You do a lot of parallelism already. Uh, but I think it's going to be a challenge to completely saturate that that bus. Um, so, you know, it, it's not the same vision as Optane, but it is a vision, and it does get to the main technologies. I like to say the future of NAND is NAND. Mm -hmm. The future of DRAM is DRAM, hopefully 3D DRAM. Uh, but I think these are the, still the two main pillar technologies. As far as emerging memories, other mm -hmm. types of memory technology, um, there, you know, certainly Optane getting taken off the playing field is a big hit because I think it's hard for any company to say, well, how do I keep going in this space? Um, you know, if mighty Intel couldn't make it work, you know, what's my chance of success? So I don't see an awful lot of effort out there now for, you know, standalone memory that would go into this space, this kind mm -hmm. of uh, space between NAND and DRAM. What I do see a lot of is the adaptation of these emerging memories. And this is what I worked on at Global Foundries is, you know, these newer technologies, uh, well, MRAM has been around a long time, but the SDT MRAM in particular is integrating them into logic processes and doing embedded memory. And I think that's just uh, from um, an investment point of view and a return on investment point of view that makes a lot more sense than trying to go after the the big DRAM and NAND markets. So that's where we see some of these new memory technologies. Um, you know, I think in, in Optane was based on phase change, and there's really only one company left that's doing phase change in any kind of volume. I think RRAM's been, you know, I. I was involved with an RRAM company uh, years and years ago, and it's it's been disappointing over the last decade. Mm -hmm. But I think SDT MRAM, I'm biased because that's what one of the things I worked heavily on at Global Foundries, has done very well as an embedded memory and come along in, in some markets. There are a couple new physical effects. Uh, there's one where you take um, hafnia oxide and uh, you have a certain crystalline structure in it that it, it does a ferroelectric effect. So this is not your grandfather's ferroelectric memory that was has, was around 20 years ago, but this is a ferroelectric physics effect in a material, and that's getting researched very heavily. So there's a few things out there, but has you know the emerging memory space taken a big hit, taken a big step back? Yeah, I think it has. Mm -hmm. Although this fall has been insanely busy for most members of the Moore's Law is Dead team, there's one team member who's been allowed to take it quite easy recently, and, well, unless you're Reesey, unless you're just a dog chilling on a fall afternoon, you could probably benefit from as little wasted time as possible, and you should probably then try Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a delicious, American-crafted source of protein and nutrients that takes minutes to make without sacrificing taste. This includes their classic packages that make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice while cooking, and their new Ramen Go packages that offer a healthy microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15-minute lunch break, whether you're 
you're back in the office now or still just working from home, bite ramen, you'll never be too busy to eat. And if you click the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON, you can save 10% off a variety of different products, including special bundles for Moore's Law said fans, raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipes, and the Vite Go packages as well, and other cooking utensils and products. Whatever you'd prefer, using these offer codes really helps support Moore's Law is dead tremendously, and it gets you a good deal on a healthy, fast-to-making, tasty, reliable sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Try Vite Ramen today. Well, so, all right. It's not just Sapphire Rapids and Genoa that have CXL support. I've also seen, you know, I leaked last night the Sienna platform, all of the specs of it. And for it's, it really seems, it's actually kind of an interesting platform. It seems like it's being marketed as a replacement for cheaper AMD Milan systems. Mm, more so than, because like Genoa, if you're going for the best, you know, dual socket Milan with Dcash on it, maybe, you're going to want to go to Genoa. You're going to want to go to Genoa X. But if you're someone who has a single socket, maybe even like 48 core Milan, Zen 4C seems to outperform Zen 3 flat out, even though it's the dense version. And they're kind of marketing Sienna, it seems like, or they're planning to soon, right on November 10th, as a product that will be cheaper than a Milan system, but better than in every way with the latest tech including even CXL. And I think they may use a version of the Sienna platform, the SP6 socket for Threadripper because I'm sorry, mm -hmm. when I look at 96 core Genoa, I don't know how you make a consumer version of that that is below workstation pricing. <laughs> I mean, they, they, that's going to be very I, powerful. I think gamers just need to accept that at a certain point, this is, it's a 6,000 or 6,096 pin socket. Guys, this is not... This yeah. is not an HEDT platform. This is a monster. But maybe, maybe Sienna can, it go, that goes up to 32 Zen 4 cores could be, and it has CXL. And in fact, in a recent interview, AMD was talking about CXL coming to consumer platforms in three to five years, which I won't read the question. Clean Sweep asked about it, though, is, mm -hmm. do you think AMD will do this, add CXL to consumer platforms anytime soon? Yeah, you and I were talking before the show, and you, you referenced that. And at first, ah, no, are they really? And then I went back and read the article and started thinking about it some more. I think, I think it's an interesting question because there's a lot of innovation happening around this idea of the memory sharing, of fabric attached memory and, and memory sharing across the fabric. It's not exactly clear to me how that's powerful in consumer systems, uh, but maybe there is. Maybe there's a really strong argument for it. That, that I'm uh, not not privy to. The thing I will say is spending time at, at OCP last week, Open Compute Project, and attending the CXL forum I, and, and going on the show floor, I was really struck by how large the CXL ecosystem will be. Mm -hmm. Originally, I was thinking, oh, it's just, hey, you implement this, you know, like DDR, you implement this uh, certain interface in your processor and then you attach memory on the other end. Boy, that, that's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is an entire ecosystem. And again, building on PCIe electricals. Think of where PCIe has gone. Mm -hmm. All the different things that got attached on PCIe that, you know, when that first came out, no one would have thought that you would do this. And I think CXL has that beauty of resting on the PCIe electricals and can be very broad. So even just in the data center, you know, we're not just talking about CPUs that implement and memory devices that implement it. 
you know, there's retimers, there's bridges, there's other types of products that I hadn't even thought about that start to connect on it. And we've been talking a lot about CPUs. You know, GPUs are going to absolutely mm-hmm. take take advantage of CXL because one of the big problems for GPUs is always, you know, how do I get enough memory? And this kind of gets to, you know, we're, we're, we're really seeing this model get more, um, more binary where you have to bind your memory incredibly close to the processing unit. You know, that's obviously what HBM does um, in, in the case of GPUs. But that's not enough memory, and then I need this, again, cache-coherent way to go outside of that to grab more memory when I need mm-hmm. it. And, and so we're going to see a wide variety of devices take advantage of this, and the, the concept is much, much more powerful than I originally thought. I was thinking it's server-to-server and maybe server-to-rack. There is some talk about do you use CXL rack-to-rack? Maybe, someday. There's even this whole initiative called uh, UCIE, which is about scaling it down even to the smallest level and talking mm-hmm. about using CXL as a protocol between chiplets or maybe even on chip. So again, I think we're at the peak of the Gartner hype cycle right now and there's lots of yeah. creative thinking around it. Um, uh, so, you know, is there that possibility? Maybe. Um, I can't really comment on would AMD execute on this though. I think it's in the, the very early stages. But you know, th- there is the possibility that there's some great applications where it makes sense for for systems, and and for gaming systems in particular, I I can mm-hmm. kind of imagine that that would be the case, that there is an argument for it because gaming systems kind of reside in that space of yeah, in some ways it's a consumer technology, but you're going to reuse some of these high performance technologies or innovate with these high performance technologies to give you certain advantages. Well, so that's the interesting thing, though. The first thing I would say is AMD says they're going to bring CXL to consumers. I the, let let's make sure we understand what they mean by that, though. Could they be counting a four thousand dollar Threadripper gaming system as a consumer product? I guess it's not server. I don't personally. I would want to see it on a future AM5 chipset for me, you know, to go. Oh, that's truly consumer, or in a one thousand dollar laptop. Um, and and again, right now, CXL is being populated with just really, really fast SSDs, though, right? But because it's persistent, there's extra things you no, can do. No, it's with actually that. not. Uh, CXL okay. is being populated right now with what are the simplest devices called memory expanders. And okay. Samsung was the first one to show it. And it's a it's a card, and you know could have 256 gigabyte, 512 gigabyte, you know, and someday it'll get up to terabyte level of DRAM in it. Now that's okay. almost, that, that's like point to point, right? I mean, that's just, you know, you, you can almost think of it very similar to a DDR module and that's mm-hmm. the idea. But what that allows you to do as time goes by is to share that over the interface with another, another box. Why is that important? Because here's something that there was some interesting research from both Google and Microsoft that they came out with over the last year. And they're talking about memory usage inside of servers. And it turns out anywhere between 40 and 60% of the DRAM in a server is allocated and unused. Mm -hmm. Wow. When your biggest hardware spend as a hyperscaler is DRAM, that is their number one hardware spend. That's like doing an over-provision of 50% on an SSD, right? I mean, that's usually I'm wasting a lot of bits. That's like an over-provision of 50%. That's well, a tremendous inefficiency. Like a big load, right? They don't want to slow down because that's exactly right. mad. 
because they don't have a place to go outside the box and grab more memory. But maybe they could have an overflow that isn't as fast as when the server's at 50% capacity, but costs them substantially less to just overflow into the CXL drive, right? Yes. So the idea of this fabric attached memory, these memory expanders, at least uh, initially, is just a simple one, which is where can I get more memory? And that might be inside my box or that might be inside another box. Mm-hmm. But that kind of breaks breaks memory out of what I call DDR jail, you know, and allows you to go to other places in the system to grab more memory. So, so that's kind of the initial thing that we're seeing. Um, that product was announced uh, earlier this year by Samsung. Then they showed something, now to get to your point, they showed mm-hmm. something um, during the summer at Flash Memory Summit, which they're calling a memory semantic SSD. Now, this was fascinating to me because it's both a NAND SSD behind a CXL interface mm-hmm. and then also DRAM behind a CXL interface. Oh, interesting. And how would you configure it? And the way they're first configuring it is is side by side. Again, one CXL interface, and you can talk to it just like it's an SSD, or you can talk to it like it's uh, some DRAM, or in the background, the DRAM and NAND can talk to each other. That's very fascinating to me because now you can use that yeah. DRAM as a cache for the SSD. And then you, again, you're, you're talking over CXL, which means you're cache coherent, which means that can be shared. They also, I spent quite a bit of time on the show floor talking to them about another configuration, which they started to show. And these are, these are concepts for Samsung. These are not announced products yet, but you could put the DRAM in front and then put the NAND flash behind. And then what the system sees is the DRAM, but the NAND flash is backing it up. That's persistent memory. You're doing it with a combination of NAND plus DRAM. It's a quite an expensive solution to do it, but it, it could mm-hmm. be done that way. So well, again, this is some of the experimentation that's been going on. I haven't yet seen you know, just a, a pure fast SSD with CXL interface, but we are absolutely going to see that within you know six months or something or less time than that. Again, I think these uh, large NAND flash companies would like to see that, you know, get explored and, and get into the marketplace. Well, that's the thing that you said it's expensive. And as you continue to talk about these like different modules that you can do over CXL, well, I can come up with limited uses for this for expensive products. But the funny right. thing is, is when I was trying to think just now, like how like a gaming device, which is what we usually talk about here, um, would use this, I think, well, what about if you have a six gigabyte graphics card and the game uses 10 gigabytes of VRAM or you have a, a, a game that uses wants 16 gigs of RAM? Does it really need 16, though? It needs more like 14. You have 12 and then it just overflows into this module. All of that sounds like a use to gamers, but it doesn't sound like it would be a cheaper solution than just getting 16 gigs of RAM or and a 12 think, gigabyte graphics And card. I think that's why we're going to see this technology absolutely deployed in the data center first, where there's mm-hmm. a clear TCO. They, they, what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to have the opportunity to underload, take out that, that, uh, over provisioning that they're doing inside the server, put it out somewhere else. Let's call it rack level and then enable that. And then the last thing I, I alluded to it quite a ways back in the CXL ecosystem is how do you manage that, that CXL fabric attached memory? Are you going to do it in hardware? Again, we talked about in Optane, that's what they're trying to do, these two different memory tiers and managing it all in hardware. Very difficult task. No, what you want to have is this middleware solution, and that middleware solution does a lot of that management, and that makes it uh, as 
transparent as possible to the application which rides above. You don't want to have to have data center applications be rewritten for this technology. Mm-hmm. Go through that middleware, that does it. And there's a company that's out there driving that called Memverge, and they've positioned themselves very well. Another company that was funded initially by Intel to help them get Optane into the marketplace. Yeah. So they've been able to pivot into this CXL space and pretty much everything they did for Optane is applicable now to uh, doing this middleware for managing uh, memory pooling. Yeah, it's interesting. When I think about CXL, I remember one of the last questions we had on the last Broken Silicon you were on was about what a next-gen console would do with this third tier of memory. And all of this sounds really expensive to like, I don't want to use the word shoehorn, but you know, like force a way to use it for gamers. That's really a lot more expensive than just having more RAM or a bigger SSD or something. But in a console where it was purpose-built and designed to do this, this could just be a cheaper system of kind of cheating like you have more memory for less money, no? That's right. It's the idea of memory sharing rather than having this overflow, this ability to grab from somewhere else. Um, that's about the only concept I can I can see being applicable here. So Falto writes in and he says, do you guys think PCs could have dedicated super fast IO controllers like what the PS5 has within the next five years or so? And I, and I bring this up because my brother just got a 5900X. I have a 3950X. So overall, it's maybe slightly weaker. But that means even though I have a PCIe or, or an M- NVMe Gen 4 SSD, and he has a maxed out, but still, it's a Gen 3 SSD, in some games, he loads faster than me now because his CPU's faster, and half of that is just... I, I mean, I've been talking about this for years on the channel. There are some games like The Division 2 where I see my CPU usage, even with 32 threads, just go to 100% for a second because it needs to use all the cores to lo- load with that fast SSD. Is going to, like... Gen 5 soon, then Gen 6, then Gen 7 SSDs, even remotely as important as figuring out the I.O. streaming solutions similar to what the PS5 did for PC gaming? Because it seems like the bottleneck is not the SSD. In half Boy, the yeah, that's that's really hard for me to comment. I, I think that there are cases, and I'm, I'm not aware in the gaming space, but there are mm-hmm. cases in the data center for sure that just going to a faster PCIe link doesn't solve your bottleneck problems. Uh, there were very specific problems with software stack in the data center that needed to be addressed. And this is a, you know, an, an area that gets uh, tuned as time goes by. So no, I'm afraid this one, I don't have a good answer for. I just, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess, and it's hard because I, it's hard for you to comment on it unless you have a frame of reference, right? Because I see these Gen 5 SSDs coming out and one of my friends who's looking to build a, a, a new system, he's on an old Broadwell system, actually, and he's like really excited to build a new high-end PC. And he asked me, hey, so are there Gen 5 SSDs on the market right now? And I was like, uh, I thought, oh, I guess not. I didn't even realize they weren't out before Zen 4 launched, which is so it, funny. It's, again, it's it's really hard for NAND Flash to saturate that interface. And, you know, especially at, at PCI Gen 5 levels, um, yeah, I think that it's a difficult task to to develop that and and have that so it fully saturates the interface. And if you don't saturate the interface, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry, it's just not a very good product. Right. And so I guess what I'm thinking is because a lot of people wrote in, I'm kind of just condensing these questions here. They were like a lot of people said that Gen 4 SSDs were overkill for gaming. And so far they are. Maybe they won't be in a year, but so far they are. 
Gen 5 SSDs aren't even really being sold yet, or I think if they are, the first one like went on sale this month on Newegg or something. So, but it sounds like we can't even saturate those. I guess my question kind of is for non enterprise uses for gamers, would you imagine that like Gen 5, that interface is going to be way more than enough for running PC games for the Yeah, I think future? my opinion is that's way more than enough because I think, I think Gen 4 for SSDs is going to be uh, around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I, and I wonder if like that many consumer devices will need Gen Six PCIe for almost anything. Honestly, moving forward for the next five years, I, I think we may have just you know the, the pace butt. the pace of PCIe doubling is astounding. You know, if you really well, think about it from a, a DRAM perspective, DDR, you know, we do a doubling of the uh, doubling of the interface technology. Honestly, is it once a decade? I mean, it's not too often, yeah, but I'm PCIe, what is it, every now. year, every two years? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. That's going super I, fast on the signaling. I mean, I think Intel technically still sells some laptops and systems because it technically like Coffee uh, Comet Lake is based on Skylake that still have DDR3 support to this day. <laughs> so, well, there, like, there, is, there is a good specialty memory market out there for, for legacy things. Um, you know, and we, we didn't talk about it, but you know, the, the DDR5 transition is on, but there's a lot of tech, you know, there's a lot of places that don't need, uh, DDR5 and will stay for DDR4. So my opinion is that DDR4 is also going to be around for a long time in a lot of places. The one comment on, on, since I kind of ventured into this, one comment I'll make on, on DDR, I think we're, you know, so let me just peel back to the, the DRAM business overall. It's kind of like three big legs. And it's data center, you know, server DRAM, it's mobile DRAM, and then it's client. That's kind of big buckets there, the three of them. So, you know, DDR originally supported all of them. Mm-hmm. And then for mobile, well, we need something different. We need something different specifically for the mobile space. So LPDDR, yeah, it kind of rests on DDR, but it's a variant of it. My opinion is for server, we're getting to a point where we need something that's different than DDR. DDR is good, good for client, and that's a good market for it. Continuing with the evolutionary approach of DDR, you know, there's obviously DDR5 will be here. What does DDR6 look like, and does that work for servers? My opinion is it doesn't really work for servers, and we need Eventually. some... Yeah, we need some kind of innovation there. And the most interesting one that I've seen, which is uh, you know an actual product, which is on IBM. IBM went to something called OMI, which is Open Cappy Memory Interface, and it's a heavily serialized interface. And uh, you know they productized it, and it has um, pretty incredible performance when you look at it. And then it get, kind of gets back at that problem of how do I get how do I solve my bandwidth per core when cores are going to 96 or 128 and I've only got 12 or 16 DDR channels? Well, if I have a serialized bus, I can route a lot more channels into it. Um, what IBM did recently is roll that into uh, the CXL consortium. And mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to see if that can get repurposed as a way to get server DRAM moving in more of that direction, get more serialized, do more advanced signaling, uh, like they're doing with GDDR6X with the PAM4 signaling, you know, do something like that, which gets you much higher performance on the interface. Client doesn't doesn't uh, isn't screaming for it, but server is. So, 
Peyton S. writes in and he says, Hi, Tom and Dave. I just watched Tom Sienna video, and I was wondering if you guys have heard any discussions of pairing a Zen 4 chiplet, the Zen 4 seed chiplet. Well, I'll skip ahead that. What he brings up, though, later on in his question is, what do you think about the future of these different types of cores and then the implications of putting different types of memory on them, whether it's AMD's yeah. Zen 4 plus Zen 4C or Intel's big little architectures, perhaps with 3D stacked cache? I wonder if consumers would prefer that over having big cores, just a bunch of little cores with a ton of cache on top of them. And I, there's a lot of implications on this I've thought about of like, you know, you talk about DDR maybe not being needed for some people. Like, could you almost just make like a 500 millimeter squared monolithic chip and then overlay a layer of just various memories that are 3d stacked on top and you don't need anything for it yeah you can um the the, the one big issue with doing these stacks so let's you know think mm -hmm. about hvm for example hvm uses uh through silicon vias tsvs and that that is a very expensive process and that literally is what gives you that that three dimensions in a different way. You're stacking chips. It doesn't change the economics at all, and it adds economics. You have to pay for this capability and then putting the vias through it. Um, that gives you very high-performance memory that can be bound very close to the compute element, uh, but it comes at a cost. And the question is going to be, is does that technology uh, come down in mm -hmm. cost, come down to a point where it can be adapted to some of these other markets? Um, I, I think it's going to take some, some real clear innovation. It's also going to continue to take increased volume. I think the volume is going to be there though, because there's mm -hmm. this demand for, for this, again, t what I call the tightly bound memory. Uh, there is that demand for it. So I can see those technologies, um, maturing, being innovated, and then, uh, moving down into some less, you know, more, more cost sensitive areas that how can they tolerate that? Could you, like, could you see, uh, again, I think this is, like, probably easily more than three years out, but, like, let's say in the future there's, like, a Zen 6 or a, I don't know, right, lie, an Arrow Lake system or whatever what comes after Arrow Lake, actually. There's all these other things they're working on where what they do in laptop is, it's a high-end system, maybe a $2,000 laptop, but what they do is, again, they just have this die, and then the top model actually has like eight gigabytes of cache on it. And because it has that, you can just add a CXL module for overflow and it tries to put everything else just on that cache because it's 10 times faster. Like, do you think that's something we could see in the next five years for like premium consumer products? Or do you think we're still a long ways away from something like that? I think it's, I think it, you, we can imagine it. I think there is that possibility. Again, I think we'd have to see, you know, the volumes get up on some of these key technologies that, that allows the the cost to not become a barrier. But I think, again, I kind of go back to the, the big model I'm going after, which is tightly bound memory and then fabric attached memory that can mm -hmm. be shared. And these uh, increasingly become the buckets that we go into for compute systems. Okay, so I've got a few final questions to throw at you, unless there was something else related to the things we've been talking about you want to talk about first. To stay no, nope, fire that. away. I think we okay. covered a lot of ground. So Chris Rich writes in and he says, it looks like the HPC market is going all in on liquid cooling. Well, it seems like almost yes. everyone's going all in on liquid cooling. Yes. He says, would you expect the normal server market to follow? And if so, in what time frame? Do you think this technology will trickle down to the consumer market anytime soon? I'd argue it kind of already has. 
Yeah, no question about it. The liquid cooling has become a, a big topic. At OCP last week, it was uh, very clear that the, the platforms are going that direction. Um, standard service, you know, as, as we approach the end of the decade, yes, it's, I think there's a lot to be solved yet on the liquid cooling. You know, what sort of coolant to use, what, what you can flow through there without disrupting the electronics that are, that are in there. Um, so I think that those are some of the challenges on it. Um, could we see it in the consumer market? Yeah, you're going to see it in the consumer market as well. Again, I think cost is going to be the biggest issue. You know, when does it make sense to, to bring it into the space? But yes, liquid cooling is going to be increasingly important. A lot of the things we talked about were saying, hey, we want to run at faster speed and we want to run things very, very close together. Mm -hmm. Well, that generates a lot of heat, right? I mean, it takes a lot of power and it generates a lot of heat. There's no way around it. So, um, you know, there, again, OCP last week, there's also, hey, liquid cooling is uh, very nice because you also eliminate the fans. Fans actually turns out a big source of power consumption in a data center. Yeah. You start eliminating fans, you know, you're, you're making some headway on your green initiatives and bringing the power down in your data center. So there's motivation beyond just the... Um, you know, the capabilities. But I think as we look at power continues to go up and up on some of these compute units, I don't think GPUs are cooling down anytime soon. They're going to still be hot monsters that, that run, uh, consuming a lot of power. I think liquid cooling is a big tool to help bring that down. And yes, I think we're going to see that uh, make its way into the consumer market towards the end of this decade. Yeah, it's interesting because AMD plays around with liquid-cooled graphics cards quite often with their flagships, whereas NVIDIA just seems hell-bent on giving you something the size of an entire Xbox that's air-cooled instead. But no matter what you talk about, whether it's NVIDIA's Lovelace or AMD's Zen 4 processors, there is a heat density issue that's clearly prevalent when we get into these smaller nodes where... Even if Zen 4 doesn't actually use as much energy as Raptor Lake, they just recommend liquid cooling so that it doesn't get too hot, you know? Yeah, and go back to the data center and the hyperscalers. The one one company that seems to really take the lead on this is Microsoft. Microsoft, in general, just tends to run to like to run cold. You know, kind of each company has their own niche, and that's what I've found there. So if you're interested in, in data center, you know, watch Microsoft and what they're doing. I think they're going to be one of the, they, they will continue to be one of the first movers in this area. Well, I have one question here that I kind of want to ask you just to see if there's anything you can say to it. It's like, and I know you probably have some exposure to this with like data center graphics. I mean, well, not even graphics cards would be accelerators too. But like when it comes to putting a new type of memory on the board for a graphics card or an accelerator, how much of the memory controller supporting that? Like if you have a card that has GDR5 and then, oh, now it supports gdr 5x or gdr6 how much of that is the memory controller was just built well enough to support faster speeds and how much of it is they had to design that from the get-go for a certain type of spec of gdr you know what i they mean they had to design it from the get-go mm -hmm. yeah those those interface the, the the data i is what it's called when you're doing the on the interface itself and that's where you can pull out the data the data i is extremely small on these devices and and you know, on these interfaces. So getting that right, it has to be very carefully designed from the beginning. It's mm -hmm. not one where you uh, just wing it. So you design it to a target and then you can, you know, it's, it's intentional, I guess is the best way to say it. Right. And the reason I bring this up is I heard that NVIDIA Lovelace was kind of built 
during this time frame. And this is a thing these companies have to worry about all the time is like, will a thing they're building towards be ready when they launch it? But exactly. NVIDIA thought, and so maybe you'll be able to tell me if this doesn't surprise you. They thought GDR7, there's a chance it'll be ready while Lovelace is out. And so whether they used it on the initial lineup or not, they should build the memory controller ahead of time to support it. And oh, right. actually, we've seen something similar with RDNA 3, which I've heard it was built to support DisplayPort 2.1 from the start, hoping that spec would be ready. Now it is. NVIDIA didn't do that. They focused on GDR7, it sounds like. But but that sounds completely reasonable to you that Lovelace is launching with GDR6X, mm -hmm. but they totally would design it years before GDR7 is announced in case it can use it next year for updated products. That's right. Again, I think it has to be very intentional design to kind of shoot ahead of where where it could be. And then if uh, the memory supply, you know, the memory chip doesn't come in in time, you can kind of downgrade a little bit and utilize that. Now there are some, you know, you know, let's say between DDR4 and DDR5, they're incompatible, mm -hmm. right? In a lot of ways, but there are memory controllers which are designed to be adaptive and be able to drive both. So that's not without some pain. That's not without mm -hmm. some design overhead. But that's typical in the industry is, you know, having that capability, having that fallback position. You, you, you pointed that out very well. I mean, if that memory chip isn't there, then you don't ship your product mm -hmm. if you design for just one thing. Um, I don't know in this specific case sure. of GDDR7 versus uh, 6X. But, but it supports yeah. 6X. And I think there's a suggestion that what was it the PAM4 signaling in 6X is something going into 7 or something. So if they're already kind of half of the way there to supporting it. I don't. I mean, I, I would assume like that. It's not the craziest idea that they would be like, oh, in case this is ready, we're going to need everything we can get to compete with Radeon. So I am sure their memory control design controller design teams have to uh, carefully consider it. And like I said earlier, it's very intentional. Mm -hmm. All right. Final question. Caleb Hudson writes in and he says, hey, guys, I know this is a bit off topic, but I was wondering, what is some advice that you would give to your freshly graduated high school self? that wants to get to where you are today. What would you do differently in terms of education and execution? What sparked your curiosity in semiconductors? Yeah, great question. Uh, thank you, Caleb. I, you know, that when I read that, I had to think back, you know, what was it? And certainly coming out of high school was physics. I really enjoyed the study of physics. Um, as I got into university, I could see how that could be applied. And that had more interest to me than, let's say, the core science. Mm. So, you know, there has to be something that sparks that interest around the, the sciences itself. But where does that take you? Does that take you into R&D, where you continue to, you know, look to uh, discover new things in a scientific field? In my case, though, it's about the usage. How do I apply that? And in my case, it was towards engineering. What can I make that's practical out of that? And I got pretty fascinated by the process technologies that go into semiconductor because um, when you do, it's called process integration engineering, and I haven't done it myself, but uh, it's something where everything kind of affects everything else. It's a total system. Uh, so if you put something in the furnace for a little bit longer, well, that affects the things you did before. And you have to think through that. You have to model it and think through it. So in terms of advice, it's lock into something that you're passionate about in the sciences itself, determine what direction you want to take that in, and then really dig in and find places where you can apply that uh, with, with people around you that share a similar passion. You know, one of the most passionate places I worked early on uh, was SanDisk. 
And at that time it was called SunDisk. And my employee number there was 32. And we were doing things that nobody else had, had really done before with this system level flash and managing system level flash. That was probably the first year was probably the most fun I've ever had in my career uh, because we were just having to come up with new concepts to apply to uh, to this space. And, and so it was innovating and solving problems that leads to a product. And then once that product ships, you get a great satisfaction out of it. You know, later on, as, as your career elevates, you're called on to do more and more things. And then in that case, as your career develops, you've got to think about the people around you and what you want to inspire in other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a transition point because you those people that are working for you may have much more knowledge about the the, the, the domain that you're managing them on. But your goal now is to um, eventually get to a point where you're inspiring them. And then as you grow further in the career, it's even in the industry. How do you inspire others in the industry? Uh, you know, talking in, in forums, in conferences, et cetera, and articulating a vision of the future that will make them want to head in that same direction. So I think that's kind of how it's got to start with that spark in the sciences mm-hmm. and then find your path through. So um, maybe that was a little bit of an esoteric answer, but uh, maybe that's the way my brain works is in an esoteric way. I guess the only thing I could add on to that is, you know, he asked, what advice would you give to yourself? Is there a pitfall you'd warn yourself about, you know, as you're graduating, you know, that comes to mind immediately? Yeah, I think the, the, the pitfall, um, not every place is a great place to work. <laughs> when you've worked only great places, you, you can fall into that trap. And uh, I made that mistake at least once in my career of moving somewhere mm. and uh, kind of giving up on, hey, this is going to be a great place to work. No, it's not. It's not a great place to work. Boy, I like that other place a lot better. That was a bit of, uh, a bit of learning for me. Right, because just because like it offered maybe a subject you're more interested in or a better location, or career better path, pay. Or, or, that's right. You, you think it's there. And uh, when, like I said, when you've only worked great places, when you move to someplace which is not great, it's a, a bit of a, a punch in the face and you go, wow, didn't think about all this. I thought every place was, you know, had cool people around me doing interesting things. And that's not always the case. Yeah, so I, that would be the advice. I give the opposite too, just as a reminder, like, Maybe you've only worked at bad places too. Don't assume the next place is going to have the same problems. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. That's true. You flip that around. That's true. Can't be sure that it's always going to be the same. That that and that there's no point in going to another place. Maybe it will be better if you just go somewhere else. Maybe that is the issue. Change is not always bad. That is absolutely true. Okay, well, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, I really want to thank you for coming on. Uh, I guess before. I do the final plugs. I mean, is there anything you want to plug? Like anything you want to promote? You're, you know, no, not really. Uh, just delighted to get a chance to talk to you and kind of catch up on some of the topics that we addressed a year and a half ago. Uh, there's some key changes, but some of the things remain the same. Some of the same vectors. Uh, and it's just every two years, things just get changed so much compared to the previous decade, at least for as far as I can tell. So I'm sure in two years. There'll be much more to talk about, but um, 
All right, then. Thank you for coming on. Thank you to everybody for listening. As usual, make sure you're subscribed to the Moore's Law Dead YouTube channel. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast app of your choice and give us a review there. Support us on Patreon to ask guests like this questions. And get it early and ad-free and all the other exclusive content that goes out to patrons as well. And uh, yeah, again, Dave, thank you so much for coming on and thank you to everybody for listening. All right. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcasts, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums, and give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Full, A.V., Anthony Greffa, Greg Pataki, Muhammad Akwari, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, Little Germany, Jan Ranier, Daniel Hyde, Shredbird, Ryan Riggleman, Dr. Foreman, Sam Miller, Deke, Thomas Rupp, The Mechanical Philosopher, Terrence Harrod, SNES Chalmers, Tom Bailey, Greg T. Wojcik, Andrew S., Frank Zielinski, Daniel D., AMJB1, Eric Jackson, Justice Brennan, Sammy Good, Valcom Alev, The Boss Haas, Nicholas Buckner, Spantum G. Spamton, Jonathan, Lord Starstream, General Trips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Aziris, Gregory S. Acker, Dominique Cock, Jake Dude 23, Jake Martin, Cameron, Christian Lavoy, Hardforum.com, Original Ross, Zicky, Lance Bassler, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Chris Frey Butler, GZ Ziggy, Sarcastro, Stefan Hart, David Sebastian, Meat and Pork, Stu, Tim Robb, Luis Correa, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jaskowiak, Travis Gooding, Holden Mobley, Nan Nan, Chris Rich, Deepest Learners, Mad, Zutsu Taylor, Stefan Coates, Michael McGee, Chuck Glidden, Sammy Moas, Greg, Ah Trini, Patrick Groh, Amiable Chief, Brett Summers, Milton, Stephen Dick, Tommy, 
Kundin, Prucha, Mark Mitchell, McDaffey, Damien Peterson, James Anderson, Marshall Pierce, Mark Rainmaker, Dave Schultz, 3DS Boy 08, Halbuma, Narithio, Matthew Landafazo, Stefan, Cole Attic, Henry Zhang, Judson N, Brendan O'Connell, The Grid, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Joseph Kelly, Noah Nicuela, Hexapuma, Chrysantine, Jaren Ferriera, Mayor, Desis, Thomas Steve, Precision, DNA Tech, Nicholas Alexandra, John O'Shea, Royce Meyer, Charles Russell, Reginald Ari, Slushpot, Teak Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Neith Rizink, David Eastland, Cal, Andre Jacques, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Sadler, Jordan Simkovic, Loophole 35, Winstar, Joker, James I. Raider, Corey Leonard, Nalima, John Shin, Justin Bustle, Kelvin, Austin Haggerty, Roger Davies, Shea, Julian, Julian Leaked, Corey Chappelle, Evan Dingle, C2, on Iverson, Samuel Park, Radiant Technologies Group, The Eternal Dreamers, Jansen Angima, Mark Central, Derek Lambine, Michael, Fours and Pours, John, Robert Davidson, Space Channel 5, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 